in his book entitled, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey tells the story of a Chicago prostitute who stumbled and staggered her way into the warm confines of a Christian homeless shelter. She was greeted by the director of the facility who struck up a conversation with her and through her sobs, she told her story. For several years, she had been a prostitute. She had been homeless. And here recently, she had done things that she never thought even imaginable. She began to sell her two-year-old daughter to do unthinkable things with the men of the night in Chicago. She confessed that her two-year-old daughter could get more money in an hour than she could get in an entire evening. She felt that she had to do this in order to keep up her drug addiction. It wasn't long into the conversation when the director realized that he was legally liable. And after the conversation, he would have to call the authorities and report what he had just been told. Before the conversation concluded, he looked at her and asked the question, did you ever think about going to church? He said he'll never forget the shock that came across her face. She said, church, why would I want to go there? I already feel terrible as it is. They would just make me feel worse. As I hear that story, and as I read the Gospel of Luke, I realize that there is a great discrepancy. It seems to me that those are the types of people that seem to flock to Jesus. But those are the type of people that you normally won't find stepping foot in the house that bears the name of Christ. I wonder why that is. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is a magnet for the marginalized. He never appears to be too high and mighty for the poor and lowly. Jesus never puts the ostracized on the outskirts. It seems that he is a friend of sinners. When you read the Gospel of Luke, it appears that Jesus is desperate for those who are desperate for him. The truth of that statement is no better on display than in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. It's there where I invite you this morning to turn your attention. Once you've taken your Bible and turned to Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36, I ask you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 36 and we'll read through verse 50. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, <clears throat> for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This morning I want to talk to you about daring devotion. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Our story is set around a banquet table. Jesus was the invited guest of Simon the Pharisee. I can well visualize that Simon invited many of his pharisaical cronies to join them around the table. I don't know if this was a special banquet for Jesus or if this was merely a uh, Sunday lunch when the people opened their home to the visiting rabbi. You know that in those days they invited the preacher to come eat in their house because there was no Cracker Barrel or Cozumel. There was no Ruby Tuesdays or Arby's. And so people would open their house and invite the visiting preacher to come, and such is the case in this story. Jesus is there. He's reclining at the table. For Luke to say that he's reclining literally means that Jesus is reclining. In the days of antiquity, a dining table was only about 18 inches off the ground. Around that table would have been plush pillows upon which the participants of the meal could rest and lean. They would typically hold themselves up on their left elbow on a plush pillow, and then with their right hand, they would reach on the table and eat the food. They would angle their bodies away from the table, extending their feet as far from the food as possible. This was done not only for comfort, it was also done for hygiene. You know that in the first century, the primary mode of transportation was foot. And when you travel very long on foot in your sandals, you can visualize that feet would begin to get dirty and dusty, sweaty and sandy. So the last thing you want is for some joker's dirty toes to be close to the food that you're about to eat. So this was done not just for comfort, but it was also done for hygiene. 
Jesus literally was reclining at the table. Customarily, whenever a person opened his home to a dinner guest, he would practice Near Eastern hospitality. Tangibly, what that looked like is that oftentimes they would uh, give them a basin of water so that the visitor could wash his feet. Sometimes the master of the house would even provide a servant to wash the visitor's feet. Whenever a honored guest came for dinner, the master of the home would always welcome him with a holy kiss. It would be like us extending a hand of fellowship, shaking somebody's hand. Somebody comes into your home, you don't dream of not shaking their hand or giving them a hug around the neck. And in these days, when someone came into your house, you, you greeted them with a holy kiss on the cheek. It was also customary that when a visitor came in, you as the host would provide some olive oil by which he could take and wipe across his forehead, refresh his skin, and uh, be quite soothing. Now, these things weren't mandatory by any stretch of the imagination, but they were customary. It was uh, common in Near Eastern hospitality and its practices. It was also commonplace that whenever anybody of importance opened his home to a visiting dignitary, the front door was always left wide open. The reason the front door was left wide open was because it may just be that the riffraff from the street would want to come in and line the walls. It was kind of an unwritten code. They understood that if your name was not on the dinner guest list, that still meant that you could come to the dinner. You wouldn't be able to eat and you wouldn't be able to say anything, but you could listen because who knows? Even the riffraff need to listen and learn sometimes, and they just might learn something from the scintillating conversation that would take place around the table. This rabbi named Simon undoubtedly left his doors wide open. He's a person of influence. He has invited Jesus to come and eat with him. Jesus is an upstart rabbi. He is a hot ticket and everybody wants to dine with Jesus and so you bet your bottom dollar that when Simon learns that Jesus is coming to his house he leaves the door wide open because even the riffraff need to come in and listen and they may benefit from the rabbinical religious conversation around the table and furthermore they need to know the great questions that Simon is going to ask Jesus not only might they need to hear how Jesus will respond but more importantly they need to hear how great Simon is and what a tremendous thinker he is because they need to hear the questions that he throws for Jesus to field I don't know how many people were the pharisaical cronies around the table but we do know there, there are several people around the table I don't know how many uninvited guests showed up. I don't know how many wallflowers were lining the walls of the dining room. But I do know there was at least one. At least one woman came in off the street. Now, she took her proper place, for it was over against the wall. She wasn't supposed to say a word. She doesn't say a word. She doesn't even speak all throughout this story. But... Her actions speak louder than words. This woman uh, goes and she's there in the house. Now, her mere presence is not all that offensive. After all, Simon would think to himself, 
Well, good, it's a woman just like that that needs to come and listen to me and listen to Jesus and listen to our conversation. It was good for Simon to be able to minister to a woman like that, but he wanted to keep her at an arm's distance. Her presence wasn't all that offensive. Her actions were flabbergasting. All of a sudden, at some point in the meal, she no longer was a wallflower. She had the audacity to get up and make her way towards the table. Now, there's an unwritten code. You don't do that. I mean, if Simon had secret service agents, they would have been on her in a minute and escorted her out of the house. Everybody knows you don't do that. If you're the riffraff of society, if you're the underbelly of the culture, you stay where you're supposed to stay. And where you're supposed to stay is lining the wall of the dining room. You're not welcomed at the table. Yet this woman apparently had never read the book. (laughs) She didn't know the guidelines. And she came and made her way and stood behind Jesus right at his feet. You talk about awkward. There was awkward silence. You know, you're, you're in a riveting conversation and then something happens and there's that awkward pause. There's that moment of uncomfortableness and all the people that were staring at Jesus They stopped staring at him and they looked directly over his head and they stared at that woman who was now standing at the feet of Christ. Now all throughout the ages, everybody's wanted to know the identity of this woman. Who is she? And I understand that. Now Luke doesn't tell us. Luke leaves her name anonymous. And yet in our effort to really, really want to know who this woman is, Some people have concluded that this woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. I understand why people think that. But I need to tell you this morning, I I think that's wrong. I don't think it's accurate. The reason people think that is because this is not the only alabaster flask breaking, perfume pouring story in the gospel. It's not the only time that a woman comes and breaks an alabaster jar of perfume and pours all of its content on the body of Jesus. No, in fact, every gospel story has one of these experiences. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 26, in Mark chapter 14, in John chapter 12. I submit to you this morning that all three of those renderings describe one singular event and that one singular event is different than the one that I just read for you in Luke chapter 7. I think that in the gospel story there are two different alabaster jar breaking perfume pouring stories in the gospel and I think that Matthew and Mark and John pretty much tell the same story. Now their story has it has some similarities to our story. For example, there's a woman who has an alabaster jar of perfume and she breaks it and pours the contents onto the body of Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, and John, that woman is identified as Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. There's another similarity in that uh, both of the experiences have a guy named Simon in it. In the other one, the one 
recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John, the man named Simon is identified as Simon the leper. Here in our story of Luke chapter 7, he's identified as Simon the Pharisee. You think to yourself, what's the big difference? A Pharisee, a leper, a leper, a Pharisee. There's a big difference, especially in the first century. The big difference is there are two different cats. There are two different individuals. There are two different people. There's one who's Simon who had leprosy and Jesus must have healed him. And then there's the other Simon who's the Pharisee, who's the host of the dinner party of Luke chapter 7. Also, there are a few discrepancies in these two accounts. In the one that's rendered in Matthew and Mark and John, the disciples are indignant. They say, what a waste. This perfume is very expensive. It could have been sold and the money given to the poor. It's John who says that Judas is the ringleader of this disgust. Now, Luke doesn't mention anything about the disciples. We don't even know if they're there. And furthermore, we don't hear anything about the disciples verbalizing disgust over this perceived extravagant waste. But here is the most decisive element for me that tells me it's two different stories. It's because in Matthew 26, in Mark chapter 14, in John chapter 12, all of them tell it that it took place at the end of the ministry of Jesus. It's during... The Passover feast, right before Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem for the very last time of his life, Jesus knows that his body will not receive uh, proper preparation before burial because of the haste in which the crucifixion takes place. And when those disciples in that story begin to uh, voice their concern and they begin to say, what a waste, Jesus pretty much tells them, hush up pipe down, be quiet. What she's doing is a beautiful thing and every time the gospel is told, her story will be proclaimed. But Luke, in his story, in this experience, it doesn't take place at the end of the ministry of Jesus. It takes place more at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. You say, uh, Pastor, why go through all that? Well, I go through all that because I really think that there are two distinct, different alabaster breaking stories in the gospel. And I think this woman of Luke 7 is not Mary, the sibling of Martha and Lazarus. We don't know much about this woman of Luke 7. He leaves her anonymous all throughout the story. Why? I think he does it on purpose. I think he leaves her anonymous because Luke, who is a masterful storyteller, wants you to identify with her. I think Jesus wants you to identify with her. I think Luke wants you to identify with her. And even Luke goes so far as to not clearly tell us her sin. Now, we assume her sin, right? I mean, everybody thinks they know the sin of this woman. This woman must be a prostitute. She's a woman of the night. She is a sinful woman who has been living in the city. I mean, everybody assumes that this woman is a prostitute, and she may very well be, and she probably is, but Luke doesn't clearly tell us her sin. Once again, why does he do that? He wants you and he wants me to identify with this anonymous sinful woman. Because as sinful as she is, so are you. As sinful as she is, so am I. We're just as sinful as this anonymous woman. And I think that Luke doesn't tell us her name, doesn't tell us specifically her sin, 
because he wants us as readers to be invited into the story and see ourselves in her. She knows her sin. Jesus knows her sin. Everybody around that table thinks they know her sin. She is overwhelmed by her sin. Jesus wants to forgive her of her sin. The people around the table want to define her by her sin. This woman is a picture of desperation. Do you see it? She's desperate. What other explanation can you give of why a woman, riffraff of society, would come unannounced and uninvited into a dinner party where she knows that she's not really welcomed, and what would cause her to move off the wall and come towards the table? I mean, she could be booted, she could be booed, she could be kicked out, she could be ostracized. There's a host of things that could happen to her, yet she risks it all. Why? Why in the world would this woman risk it all just to stand at the feet of Jesus? The only answer I could come up with is that this woman is desperate. There's a sense of, of desperation by her actions. This woman is as desperate as the man who had leprosy. You remember his story early in the gospel? Leprosy was that dreaded skin disease. Nobody knew what to do with it. Nobody knew how to really cure it. People treated lepers like you and I treat AIDS patients today. Uh, we kind of ostracized them, don't know what, uh, how to handle them. In fact, in the first century, lepers were told to live in their own communities far away from everybody else. Yet, in the gospel story, there's a leper who risked it all to come stand before Jesus. I mean, not only does he risk humiliation, but he risks the contamination of other citizens. He risks being thrown in jail, being executed. I mean, nobody would blink an eye at killing a leper right there in the street, and nobody would have to pay for it. Yet this leper, he risks it all. He goes and stands before Jesus, and this is what he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cured. I wonder if this woman was in the crowd that day. I wonder if she was there and saw just how tender Jesus was towards a leper. And she thought to herself, I don't have leprosy of the skin, I have leprosy of the soul. And I wonder if Jesus is that tender towards that man, will he be equally tender towards me? I wonder if she was in the crowd that day. Because she's as desperate as a man with leprosy. She's as desperate as the four friends of the paralytic, and she's as desperate as that paralyzed man. You remember the story, don't you? These men make their way towards Jesus. The house is packed. They can't get to him, so they are rather intuitive. They go up the side staircase adjacent to the house. They cut a hole in the roof. They plop their friend right at the feet of Jesus. And I wonder if this woman was in that crowd on that day. Because... If she was there, she would have seen just how merciful Jesus is. He said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And then he said, take up your mat and walk. And the man who had never walked before, paralyzed, he jumped to his feet. He reached down, picked up his mat and walked out in the plain view of everybody else. And everybody in the crowd went crazy. 
I wonder if this woman was in the crowd that day. I wonder if she saw just how merciful God was towards him. And she thought to herself, I wonder if Jesus will be that merciful towards me. I wonder if she was in the village of Nain just a few passages earlier when Jesus stopped a funeral procession. This mother was a widow. She had already buried her husband. Now she was having to bury her own son. She was grieving. She was distraught. She was desperate. And Jesus walks up and he touches the coffin and he says to the dead corpse, little boy, get up. (laughs) And the little boy sits up and Jesus gives the living child back to his mother. Praise erupts. The crowd says, now God has come to help his people. And I wonder if this woman was in that crowd that day and she saw how God in Jesus had come to help these people and she wondered if God in Christ would come help me. This woman was desperate. As desperate as a man with leprosy, as desperate as a paralytic, She was as desperate as a grieving widow who had just lost her son. She was desperate. You know what I've discovered about people who are desperate? Desperation can lead to daring devotion. Have you noticed that? Desperation can lead to daring devotion. This woman said, I want Jesus to make a testimony out of my test. I want Jesus to make a message out of my mess. My life is messed up. I have no testimony. I have no good news. I need for Jesus to do a work in my life. I am desperate. I'm at wit's end. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know where else to go or who else to turn to. So I'm going to risk it all. I'm going to come off the wall. I'm no longer going to be a wallflower. I'm going to step out, step up. I'm going to come behind Jesus and I'm going to show him the level of desperation that I have this woman is desperate and desperation can lead to daring devotion this woman is sobbing the word that Luke uses to describe her tears is elsewhere a Greek word used to describe a rain shower she is sobbing tears streaming down her cheeks her mascara is running I've been told that her tears were like liquid love falling to the ground. She was bawling for the blessed one. She was crying for Christ. She was broken over her sinfulness. And she was pouring out liquid love. She was just crying and weeping. She couldn't hold it back. She didn't try to hold it back. She just stood there shaking, weeping, crying. And the water pooled at the feet of Jesus. And then this woman, she became so bold, so daring, that she let down her hair in public. She has to let down her hair to do what's next because then she must bend down on her knees and with her hair she begins to dry the feet of Jesus. In the days of the first century, most women, all women, were to wear their hair up whenever they went out into public. You can let your hair down at home. You can let your hair down in front of your spouse. But you don't let your hair down in public. To do that was to be very flirtatious. And if this woman was a prostitute, and I think she probably was, 
she knew how to be flirtatious. Ladies, y'all know how to be flirtatious. Ladies, you know how to let your hair down. And you know how to do it in a very flirtatious way so the locks just fall down. This woman knows how to use her body to get men. Yet this woman is not being flirtatious to Jesus. She's worshiping Jesus. How do you know that? She's in a posture of humility. She's in the place of worship. She kneels down. She lets her hair down not to flirt with Jesus, but to worship Jesus because with her tears, she had wet his feet. And now she was drying them with her hair. And then when it was over, she was kissing his feet. That's not a flirtatious act. That is not kissing in a a romantic way. That is kissing in a worshipful way. She's in a position of worship before Christ. All throughout the gospel, this is the proper position. Matthew, in his gospel, he's so convinced about this that he shows us this posture of worship as bookends at the very beginning of his gospel and at the very end of his gospel. You recall that when Matthew begins his gospel, he he tells us about the birth of Christ, and then he tells us about wise men who come from the east. They bear gifts. They find Jesus, who is by now a two-year-old toddler, and they walk in and they give his gifts, and Matthew specifically says that these grown men kneel down and worship the Christ child. Matthew does that on purpose to show us that's the proper posture of how you even relate to the Christ child. And at the very end of his gospel, once Jesus has grown into a man and been crucified and buried on the third day, been raised from the dead, At the very end of Matthew's gospel, in chapter 28, Jesus is standing on a mountain. His disciples come to him, and Matthew specifically tells us that many of his disciples knelt down and worshiped him. This is the proper posture throughout all the gospel and how you relate to Jesus. You and I have talked on numerous occasions that the only way you get into the kingdom is on bended knee with head downcast, eyes closed, uh, palms open heavenward with arms out, outstretched and you say, Lord, I come to you as a spiritual beggar. I don't come to you high and mighty. I don't come to you proud and arrogantly. I come to you as a spiritual beggar. I am broken. I'm on bended knee. I am contrite and I bow before you. This is the picture of this woman she's on bended knee her tears have drenched the feet of Jesus and now her hair is drying them she's kissing him and then she does something that's very daring she takes an alabaster jar of perfume she breaks it and pours it all on the feet of Jesus if this woman is a woman of the night, if this woman is a prostitute, what she's doing is she is giving Jesus the tools of her trade. It would have been very common for a prostitute to have a a small alabaster flask of expensive perfume. She would have worn it as a necklace around her neck and it would have been low enough just to rest right inside of her cleavage. She did this so that she could give off a sweet-smelling aroma to all of her gentleman callers. But Jesus was no gentleman caller. He was not like any man she'd ever met before. And on this night, 
there was transformation from the inside out. Everything was different. She gave Jesus all of her worship. She gave Jesus all of her skeletons. She gave Jesus all of her past. She gave Jesus all of her hope for future. She gave Jesus all of her sinfulness. She gave him her tools of the trade. She took the flask off of her neck. She broke it, emptied all of its contents upon Jesus. Why? Because she said, this man has changed my life. This man has radically transformed me. I no longer need this. I'm giving up the way that I used to make money. I'm giving up the way that I used to live my life. I don't know how I'm gonna live in the future, but I'm gonna live in the future for this one, for he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the all in all, and I give him all that I am in worship, in adoration. I give him all my past, all my junk, all my sin, and I break it and lay it right here before the Lord. She broke the flask that was alabaster made in the contents of pure nard perfume and she poured it all on the feet of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't stop her. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. It's almost as if Jesus welcomes that, invites that, and, and implores for that to happen. Why? Because he's worthy of it. We can't give him too much. We can't make too much of Jesus. The more adoration we give him, the more acceptable we are because that's the acceptable behavior of those who bow before the Lord. And so Jesus doesn't stop this woman. Jesus doesn't say a word. This woman doesn't say a word. Nobody around the table says a word. But everybody thinking something. In fact, Luke tells us the thoughts of Simon the Pharisee. If this man were a prophet, he would know what type of woman is touching him, and she is a sinner. What he's saying is, I've heard the reputation of Jesus, and the reputation of Jesus is that he is a prophet, powerful in word and deed, but he doesn't have a clue. If he can't see, everybody can see this woman is a prostitute. If he can't see that, then he is no prophet. In fact, His reputation does not precede him if he can't pick up on the reputation that's standing before him. She is a sinner. That's the title that's slapped on anyone who has a perceived lifestyle that's contrary to the word of God and the will of God. It's the same title that the religious establishment will give to Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner, a tax collector. And so tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, drunkards, murderers, all scum of society. These are the people, they're like magnets to the Messiah. Yet the religious establishment says, oh no, we can minister to you, but it must be at an arm's distance. Jesus, if you were a prophet, you would know what type of woman is touching you. And she is a sinner. I promise you that Simon is not the only one who's thinking that. There are others of his buddies that are probably thinking the very same thing. And you know what? As I think about it, I bet there are a lot of Simons in the church of the 21st century today. You don't believe me? All I'd have to do is this. All I'd have to do is get an exotic dancer from Sammy's, from the furnace, from some other place in Birmingham. That's the only two I know about. because y'all can tell me where the other ones are. (laughs) But all I'd have to do is get a known exotic dancer 
from a place of ill repute in the Birmingham metro area, have her come into a worship service and get a little bit too close to one of the pastors. That's all it would take. And your eyebrows would be lifted. Did you see who came and was standing next to Pastor so-and-so? Did you see how he did not shoo her away? Did you see that Pastor so-and-so welcomed so-and-so floozy into the place? Did you see what happened today? All I'd have to do is just welcome somebody in like that, and it would reveal the Simons in the crowd. I think Simons not only are around the table, but I think Simons are also in the church. And Jesus knows this. So Jesus says, Simon, I've got a story to tell you. And Simon says, tell me, I'm always up for a good story. What Simon doesn't know is that he cannot feel the noose that's about to go around his neck. <laughs> this is just a little rabbit, a little caveat. I'm not going to chase it far, so don't get worried that I'm getting off track. But the word Simon literally, literally means pebble, little stone. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, little man, I've got a story to tell you. <laughs> because you know the word Simon means little pebble, little stone. Because isn't it interesting that the other Simon, the, the one that Jesus names Peter, the, the apostle, uh, the word Peter means rock, boulder, stone. So what Jesus says is, hey, little man, I'm going to make you into a big man. Simon, you're no longer Simon. I'm going to call you Peter, right? Because he says, I am going to make you into a big man. In our story of Luke chapter 7, now I'm back on track. On our story of Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, hey, little man, I've got a story to tell you. And little man says, I'm always up for a big story. There were two men who owed money to a certain moneylender, Jesus said. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither could pay back the amount. And so Jesus canceled the debt of both. The moneylender canceled the debt of both. A denarii is an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. The first man owes nearly two years of wages. The second man owes nearly two months of wages. Neither can pay it back, Jesus says that the moneylender cancels the debt. He asked the question to Simon, which one will love him more? And Simon knows the principle because Simon answers, the one who had the greater debt canceled. Here's the principle. Great grace leads to great love. Simon knows this. Simon knows that where there is great grace displayed, there will be a demonstration of great love. So, Great grace always leads to great love. Simon knows this. He says the one who had the larger debt canceled. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. Simon, do you see this woman? I know he sees her optically, but do you see her? What Jesus is saying is, you've got something to learn from this woman. Don't miss the dig. For Jesus to say to a Pharisee, you've got something to learn from a prostitute, that is a tremendous dig. Simon, you've got something to learn from her. Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water, but she has not stopped crying liquid love around my feet. I came into your house and you did not welcome me with a holy kiss, yet this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. I came into your house and you did not give me any cheap olive oil to wipe on my forehead, yet this woman has opened up expensive perfume and poured it on my feet. This woman, who's been forgiven much, loves much, for he who loves little forgives little. Simon, you don't understand that you're just as spiritually dead as this woman. You're as much in spiritual need of God's great grace as this woman, yet you don't understand it. You don't perceive it. 
And then Jesus turns to the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. Those around the crowd, in the, around the table are about to go crazy. Who is this? He says that he can even forgive sins. Only God can do that. And Jesus clarifies, in case you missed it. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your tears did not save you. Your perfume did not save you. Your performance did not save you. Your faith saved you. Do you realize this is the only equation that Jesus ever gives for salvation? And when he gives it, he gives it over and over again. Sometimes your translations say, your faith has healed you. The word for healed is the same as saved. It's Jesus saying, I'm giving you the equation for salvation. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way that anybody is saved. Whether you're Simon the Pharisee or whether you're the anonymous sinner of Luke chapter 7, the only way that anybody can be saved is for you and for me to get desperate for God, to get desperate for Christ, to be desperate for the power and moving of the Holy Spirit, the only way for you and for me to be saved is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This woman left fulfilled because she entered desperate. I've got to close, but I've got to ask you, how desperate are you for Christ? How desperate are you for Christ? How badly do you want Jesus? How much do you realize your need for forgiveness? How hungry are you for the holy things of God? How obsessed are you for obedience to the word of God? How desperate are you for Christ? I've asked you these diagnostic questions before. I'm gonna ask you today, and don't be offended, I'll probably ask you more in the future. But let me ask you this. Who do you think about the most? Who do you make it your aim to please? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? What relationship do you pour more of your energy into than any other relationship? Who are you obsessed about? Who do you think about first thing in the morning and last thing at night before you lay your head on the pillow? If you answer anything other than Jesus, then my friend, you are not desperate for Christ. You and I have got to get to a place where we are desperate for the Lord because desperation will lead us to daring devotion. Where we say unto the Lord, Lord, I am broken because of my sinfulness. I'm broken because of my past. I give you all of my hope for the future. I pour everything before you. I bow before you on bended knee in the posture of humility and contrition. And I am broken before you in worship because you deserve all my adoration and praise. So you tell me what to do and I'll do it. You tell me where to go and I'll go because I am daringly devoted to you. My friends, if you confess your sins before the Lord, he will forgive you of your sins. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And for those of us who are in Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation. God has lavished his love upon us that you and I should be called sons and daughters of God Almighty. Oh my friend, where God has displayed great grace in your life, it will result in a demonstration of great love. And I can say to you, I am a recipient of great grace. 
It took a lot of grace to save me. It, it is a lot of grace to sustain me. And that's not just preacher talk. That's what I really believe. Because I can tell you this morning that Jesus should have killed me, but he called me. Jesus should have removed me, but he's redeemed me. Jesus should have forgotten me, but he's forgiven me. Jesus should have ignored me, but he's ignited me. I got to tell you that Jesus should have slaughtered me, but he saved me. All I can say this morning is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I don't know about you, but I'm a recipient of amazing grace. And I know that devotion unto Christ, I know that my life unto the Lord is needed because God has demonstrated his great grace unto me. So this morning, when was the last time you were desperate for Christ? When was the last time you repented of sin? When was the last time you confessed your disobedience unto the Lord? When was the last time that you were broken over the things that break the very heart of God in your life? When was the last time this altar was full of people repenting of their sin? When was the last time this carpet was tear-stained? When was the last time that you had liquid love streaming down your face when you realize that great grace has been displayed unto you and great grace results in great love? Oh, my friend, can we be desperate today? Because desperation can lead to daring devotion. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Hear our sobs. Hear our confession. Be pleased as we kneel before you in worship. Help us to be desperate for you today. In Jesus' name, amen.